a very much more backcountry experience. And so self-reliance is of the utmost importance. Yeah, don't go out on the line unless you're totally ready to take that commitment. Being out on the high line is a commitment of self-reliance. That's one of the best parts of the whole sport. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, where we hear stories of adventure from every corner of the planet. We interview all sorts of folks who are using their sport to explore the world around them and give you the inspiration you need to get out there and have some fun. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. We're going to have Ari back on again one day. The guy's adventures just are so vast and so amazing that I really feel like I didn't do this episode justice in a lot of ways, but it is incredibly enjoyable. And one is because Ari is such an incredibly deep thinker, and that's how you pronounce his name, A-R-I. It's Ari. And uh, appropriately enough, one of his uh, sports is highlining, which is where you take a slack line or you know a piece of webbing, like a similar to a toe strap or something, uh, but specifically made for this, and you tie it between two points off the ground. You know, a lot of times you see folks doing this, you know, a couple feet off the ground, tied between two trees in the park, and they'll just balance on the line, walking back and forth, maybe doing tricks on it. Well, Ari and his friends took this to an. Uh, unprecedented level by stringing together a bunch of webbings to make a two kilometer highlining experience. And that is 1.25 miles literally across an entire giant canyon in the ground, an old asbestos mine that had filled up with water and is now this huge hole filled with this turquoise water. He and his friends literally took a two kilometer long webbing, took it across the entire lake, strapped it up. It's, you know, hundreds of feet off the ground and sags quite a bit in the middle in the middle and they literally got on one side you know they're tied in of course and walk balance themselves and walk across the other side 1.25 miles later and it was take it took place in the town of asbestos quebec and obviously that's where they used to mine asbestos but we all know that asbestos is now um considered pretty toxic and not something we use anymore. So the mine shut down, kind of grew over with trees and it's kind of beautiful in its own way. And we talk about that, but there it's, th- this whole episode is kind of around that whole project and what it looked like. And I linked a video, a YouTube video in the show notes. I really encourage you to check it out. It's about 10 minutes long and it really helps you visualize what this looked like, how they did it, and also what what kind of uh, energy it gave this small town. And this was from uh, last year. So please check it out. And if you want to find out more about him, just look up Airy in the Air. That's the name of his podcast where they interview, where he, he does something very similar to this, interviews adventures. They talk about philosophy, talk about their adventures, talk about you know, just all kinds of interesting things. He's definitely a deep thinker, great storyteller, great communicator. And one last thing, I actually made a really stupid rookie mistake and forgot to hit record for about the first two or three minutes of our interview. So uh, it's just going to pick up right when I was asking about what kind of sports he's into and how he got into it. So uh, apologies for that. It hasn't happened in about a year or so. So, uh, geez. Anyway, enjoy. I really like that really set my 
passion bomb off inside of myself that I basically started skiing when I was eight years old, did my first flip when I was 12. And then by the time I was in high school, I was like skipping class to go skiing. And then I basically managed a college education to continue my skiing. And then after that, I just was skiing 150 days a year and slope style was my preferred drug of choice in that arena and that was you know those are big jumps big rail features and as time went on the bigger and the the bigger and bigger jumps became kind of my specialty double backflips and double front flips were kind of my bread and butter then one winter it kind of just didn't snow and so i started to learn how to highline highlining is a type of blacklining that we do way off of the ground between cliffs and canyons and that kind of thing and so that winter I got really into highlining and that became a full-blown thing that kind of took over my life and I was probably doing that about 100 days a year or more and then I made this film actually with this French base jumper who lives in town here and we did a paraglide rope swing to base jump where he like rigged up this rope off of one paraglider and then got a handle on the end of it and he was in a tandem glider and they connected and he jumped out of the tandem glider and swung off of the rope and let go and fell a thousand feet and pulled his parachute and it was awesome wow (laughs) yeah it was super cool and then you know uh that was like late october and then february i started lessons with one of the guys who was like one of the stunt coordinators on that and by the end of that spring I was flying and by the end of the summer I was teaching lessons and since then I've paraglided probably you know around a thousand flight hours in 12 countries on five continents and just like have really paragliding has totally taken over my life and it's actually nice now I've been paragliding for like five and a half years and it's actually coming into a really nice balance and for the first time in a long time, I really have in this really nice balance between all of these sports. Um, in the past, one has has uh, tended to kind of like take over and hold more space. And I've never stopped doing any of them. But, you know, like this year I've skied less than I've ever skied. Um, just kind of weather and now this whole dynamic has kind of kept me from skiing as much as I usually do, but I'm finding a really nice balance right now. And then, and mountain biking has taken a big resurgence into my life. In October, I went to Mexico and filmed this race. Uh, my best friend, his name is Adam Craig. He's an Olympian mountain biker and just like one of the best mountain bikers on the planet. And he got me this gig to make this video of this mountain bike race in Oaxaca that turned out to be just the most heinous trails I had ever seen in my life. And it was just like so crazy steep and so rocky and the runs were so long and I had never seen mountain biking like that. And so it kind of broke my brain and has really reignited my interest in mountain biking. And so now mountain biking is kind of like this fourth sport. And on the side of that, I basically, I have sponsors or had sponsors before coronavirus, and <laughs> oh. Um, oh, man. I do a lot of uh, filmmaking. I have a YouTube channel where I do a lot of uh, storytelling and vlogs, as well as a lot of paragliding tutorials and instructional videos. I have a podcast where I do a lot of philosophical monologues. I've been talking a lot. They, 
my podcast has a lot of different things, everything from storytelling on my adventures all the way to my deep thoughts about philosophy and relationships, as well as personal development. And uh, lately has been a lot of coronavirus and future human potential type stuff, futurist kind of conversations. It's been super, I've been really fired up with all of this to kind of do a lot of thinking and do a lot of sharing and um but yeah it's kind of the filmmaking part of it that makes the whole professional athlete gig go around i make films for sponsors and tell stories and do live events and podcasts and all that stuff and i'm also a writer and i don't know i just uh you know like when i was young i was told that adhd was bad and now as an adult i'm like it's totally my superpower and so i just kind of loosen the reins on myself and let myself do whatever i'm a I'm passionate about, and that tends to lead me in what I have found to be the perfect right direction. Oh man, that's fantastic! I mean, geez, you you mentioned a lot, and you know, I love that you mentioned you know ADHD is a superpower because a lot of folks, mm-hmm. obviously, we don't ever really view it in that light. But I did in preparation for this, listen to some of your podcast episodes, and I do appreciate the. The philosophy side of things, like, why do we do this? What is, you know, I love the deep thinking side of it, and I love the current event side of it. I told our listeners this morning on the episode that, hey, I, I, I you know, a lot of folks want to keep a sense of normalcy right now. I want to talk about this. Things that are changing the of world course. are fascinating, are mm-hmm. at the very least fascinating, and ob- obviously at the worst, troubling and and devastating for some folks, and I don't want to disregard anyone going through stuff like that, but... um no man it's it's i think it's all connected and it's all worth talking about and I, I we love speaking about that stuff but but you mentioned you make films through all these sports is that is that how you support what you do or or do you do something else on the side as well no that's typically the um that's the avenue in which i can convince my sponsors to give me what is a living wage as opposed to uh you know some side income um so uh, Keen Footwear has been my best sponsor over the last four years, and we've created what I named so creatively as the Airy in the Air series. And that started <laughs> with a trip to China in 2017, where I went to an international slacklining competition and then a paragliding competition and just had some really cultural, incredible experiences with the locals and the children. And the, it was just like, I think, honestly, the film that I made from China, episode one of the Area in the Air series with Keen, I think it's still the best thing I've edited. Um, and then the next year I went to Italy and went paragliding through the Dolomites and met this really nice kid named Armin who lost his father when he was young and kind of told his story as well as like just showed kind of what the life is like in Northern Italy, as well as I did this great tandem paraglide cutaway base jump thing at Lake Garda, which was really fun. And that's in there. And then the last summer went to Canada. We did the world record high line. We did a 1.25 mile long slack line across this old mine. And I made a film of that. And, um, so those are the three episodes of the keen area in the air series, the short films that I've made that have kind of made my life go around for the last few years. (laughs) 
Now, I'll be honest, it's been a busy week with work and I haven't, I didn't get a chance to really, you know, really dig into some of this. So a lot of this is totally unknown to me. I've seen pictures of this slack line across this mine. Can you just describe mm-hmm. this for people? It looks just not like some of the stats, some of the basic stats of what this endeavor uh, undertook, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> yeah, it's honestly, it's like, a lot of people say, "Ari, like I don't, I don't get it," and I say, "I don't get it either." Like I, I don't understand it. Honestly, it's something that you just kind of have. Oh, like wow. there's an element of faith to it. And so basically, in outside of Montreal, Quebec, Canada, there is a place called asbestos, and asbestos is a mineral. It is a rock, and in asbestos. Quebec, they have created what is called the Jeffrey Mine. And the Jeffrey Mine is this absolutely monumental mine where the vast majority of asbestos that was used to create all kinds of things, including the insulation that stuck to our gym ceilings as children, was mined. And it's a it's got a crazy history. This place has a crazy history. Basically, asbestos was like it was revolutionary material. It like made the cost of firefighters' hoses and equipment and gloves and jackets like plummet. It was like it made all this stuff accessible. It was a, such a good insulator. And years later, it was found to be carcin- carcinogenic, and which brought a lot of shame and um, to the town. But the mine is literally so big that it ate away at part of the town. Like the sh- a couple of the city streets just end in the mine because the mining company bought the land and then just mined into it. So the, the town is literally like wow. chipped away at by the mine. But it's been closed down for a decade or more now. And so what's left is this huge, huge hole in the ground. And it is actually... You know, it seems like, oh, like man-made, but like you spend enough time there and actually like you start to see the beauty of it, like just what we're capable of and how powerful we are to transform the earth. And the other side of that is like our responsibility and like how much we can actually consume and how big of an impact physically we can have as humanity on the earth right there. It's like a really strange metaphor to kind of spend 10 days at. And so basically the world record Highline project there was created by a Canadian friend of mine. His name is Danny Bouchard. And he got this idea that, you know, this might be the best place in the world to rig this size of slack line. Um, yeah, like I said, the slack line is 1.25 miles long. It's two kilometers. And it's 6,700 feet long. Um, and to put a line like that up, you know, like the weather is a huge factor. Like you can't have too much wind. You can't have lightning. Like to do it between two mountains is kind of out of the question. It's just too big. Like there's just so many unknowns, like literally electrostatic energy that swirls around in the mountains just from lightning and weather is literally too much of a risk for us to do that between two mountaintops uh we've had like high lines have been cut by like not even lightning but kind of like some kind of electrostatic energy that's up there that we don't really understand as dirtbag highliners but 
Um, <laughs> this one is just like a perfect, this is like a perfect place to just put this huge line. And um, to make it happen, Danny worked with the town of Asbestos and got them to like literally make a new park on the edge of the mine that has a slackline park that has all like sand like beach sand in it so that families can come and there's posts where you can put up a slack line and this new like park in town and he organized this big event that was basically one weekend and three days of music and vendors and food and slack line and yoga and breath work um like all the free courses and basically as the slackliners who were invited out to be part of this project brought equity and we set up the lines we set up the bleachers we set up the the fences we did all the that kind of logistical work and basically sweat equityed our way into earning time on this world's longest slack line um slack line itself being 6700 feet long it has about 400 feet of sag so Walking across this thing is a absolutely transcendental, spiritual, physical, mental, intellectual journey that is hard to describe. But it is a – yeah, it's just the craziest thing. It's like when I said at the beginning that I don't understand it, there is a part of me – that can talk to you and tell you what slacklining is like. And then there's another part of me that can literally do the balancing. There is like my monkey brain can balance, but I can't, I can't like dictate that to you in real time. You know, I'm not on the line saying left hand down, right shoulder out, right knee, left foot step. It's just like my monkey brain has slacklined for so long. I've been slacklining since 2006 that I just, as I'm walking across something like that, you know, and it helps to understand that I, I had the second fastest crossing there and it took me an hour and 45 minutes. Most people were on the line from between three to four hours, two and a half to four hours to cross this line. Um, and so I did it in an hour and 45 minutes and the, just the duration of this kind of exercise and, connection to my breath and just the place that this line takes you into such a vast void you know highlining is a sport where we encounter the void a lot but this is on another level you know in the beginning when you start highlining you are afraid of the vertical component how high the line is off of whatever it is that you would impact if you fell off of the damn thing and as time goes on, you get more comfortable with the height and you know that your leash is tied and that the rigging is strong and that you're not going to die if you fall off. And as my career in highlining has progressed, I've been lucky enough to be kind of on the leading edge of the length as we've pushed the length. Um, and what happens when you get on a really, really long one is that in the beginning, it seems kind of normal next to the cliff. And then you walk for an hour to the middle of the thing and now you are in a place unfamiliar to your senses as a highliner because 
you are now, you've added the exposure that used to be just vertical. Now you've, ex, you've added a different dimension of exposure that now you are literally in the middle of this line that you can look back one way and the anchor is so far away that you can't even see people. And you look the other way and the anchor is so far away that you can't even see people. And it's like, whoa, like I'm really, really out here. And there's a sense of exposure. There's a sense of self-reliance. There's a sense of, of risk that, you know, I say in my film about it, that like, that if you fell down, that you would drown out here. It's just like an ocean of webbing. And the only way out is to walk. Like you can't slide across it. Like rescue is a really, really daunting, just a total non-option and like self-reliance out there in the middle is, is crazy. And so, but those are like almost the intellectual thoughts that come into your head, but that monkey mind that can still balance and, um, like a big part of walking across the line like that is allowing yourself to do it, allowing the parts of you that can do it to do it instead of trying to manage those parts of yourself. And, you know, I think that there are like monks who have found like transcendental, mystical, psychedelic experiences through breath and concentration. And I feel like that kind of line can almost invoke some kind of that where you know if i focus really hard and i just focus on my breath for an hour and 45 minutes when i get off of the line on the other end i'm like changed and exhausted and been somewhere that i haven't been before like even mentally even spiritually almost right like the level of self-reliance and exposure and commitment and duration the whole thing like the world record high line is um yeah that's honestly one of the most rewarding things i've done and just to be clear i actually uh the line is 2000 meters long and i on my first try walked successfully 1.4 kilometers 1400 meters for about an hour and 20 minutes i walked without falling and then i fell down and i caught the line and i was very disappointed because that voids my chance to actually be one of the um world record holders for the guinness book which i didn't actually care that much about but i went out there pretty dead set on giving it my best effort and luckily my friend Mia Noble who is a woman from Canada walked it successfully on her first try becoming a world record holder and so she gave me her turn to attempt it again and on my second try I walked like 1.7 kilometers without falling down and then finally fell again right in front of the crowd on the Saturday night with the band and everything uh, but it was all just an incredible experience for sure. Transformational to say the very least. Yeah. It, I, so much you said, and I, I could just encourage folks to look at these pictures because it doesn't, it's, it's kind of incomprehensible. I see you standing on this line and I see a Canyon literally miles away and the line just disappears into the, yeah. up towards the edge of the Canyon. And I think, you're on that, literally that 
pencil thin line that that is so far away it disappears in the image. How is that even possible? In the, yeah, the amount of concentration, the amount of time. It, it, it and from the pictures, I, I was going to ask too about the sag because it looks like you're freaking climbing a mountain on the other side because it's so steep. <laughs> it so it's got to be a workout towards the end, especially right when you're pro- probably the most tired, the most mentally exhausted. Uh, exactly. You know what I'm saying? Like it's the hardest part right at the end, and and you also, you know, they got the folks there watching. Everyone can kind of see at this point for sure. And and not only that, but the imagery of like you're over this place that is beautiful. Yes, it's man-made, but but beautiful, but also very deadly. Like it's a representation of things we've learned about the world and about, you know, chemistry and about substances that are harmful. And so this whole place is shut down. And the whole reason you're able to use it is because it's not being used anymore for that purpose. And so there's like, you're, you're, it's, it's like you're walking across the gate of hell or something. It's really crazy, very crazy idea altogether. But I mean, what a, what a phenomenal experience. I can't, I can't, I can't imagine. I honestly can't. Yeah. It's, you mentioned a number of things that are actually really interesting there like the um the sag and the fact that the line disappears because literally as i walked it both times i walked it in one direction and it's being backlit so like the line is in the sun but also the background is in the sun and so the light that comes off of the background like just blinds me so i can't actually see the line and it you know it disappears so you're standing on this thing that extends into the into your view but you literally can't see it and there's this weird like faith that you're like well it must be there because i'm still standing on it it's still connected to the other side but like it has it has to be there there's like this level of faith in that which is really strange and just visually it's so weird because typically we can see the line and that's what we focus on so when you can't see it you kind of like have to do something else. But also the sag, yeah, basically, you know, you start up and you walk downhill and you get down to the bottom and you pretty much walk what feels flat for probably like 1.2 kilometers or 1.1 kilometers. So like you're pretty much flat for so long and you get to the last 400 meters and all of the 400 feet has to be taken out in 400 meters. And so the last part when you're tired and you're exhausted and you've been focused for so long, that's exactly what got me. It, um, it also, as you get closer to the anchor, you can actually start to feel your own reverberations back in the line. In the middle of the line, your reverberations just dissipate because there's so much length between you and the anchor that the webbing just takes up the energy that you put into the line. Um, but as you get closer to the anchor, it starts reverberating back to you and trying to ripping the li- trying to rip the line out from under your feet. And so <laughs> it um, it gets exponentially harder right there at the end when you could really use a little bit of help. It doesn't it doesn't give you that help. It 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 really demands that you finish super strong. So it's super interesting. And yeah, I really like what you say, the metaphor of just like what the mind means, like the lessons of the mind. And, you know, it's honestly going to the town, like from afar, it seems like, yeah, like we, we shouldn't use that kind of stuff, but like to go to the town 
and realized that the entire town was built on this mine. Like everyone in the town either worked for the mine or worked supporting the people lived in the town that worked in the mine. And it's like, you know, right when you drive into town, there's this old retired dump truck that the tires are like 20 feet tall. Like the thing is just monumental dinosaur size. You can't even imagine it. And it's like it's both that we kind of find out through chemistry, yeah, this is bad for us and we shouldn't do that. And we should also be cognizant of our impact on the earth. But also like the other side of that, that there's like such a human element to stopping that. Right? And we're seeing such a correlation to that now as we're like, okay, like the things that we shouldn't do, the banking and the finances and just like our entire supply chains and all of our fragile systems that we depend on like there's a big human element to that and like slamming on the brakes on things that are bad for us has a big human impact and so it's a really interesting you know my perception of what i thought the asbestos mine was and what it meant before i went and then how that changed when i went there and i met the people and i kind of learned the history and i just realized how much kind of poverty there is there now and people are just kind of stuck there in that town and there's like really high unemployment and just like kind of the mine was really good for those people and that was like their bread and butter and so yeah it's a strange thing and it has deep metaphorical implications and it's an amazing place to walk a huge slack line does that realization make you think differently about anything we're facing today any industries that are might not agree with, but you understand that there's people behind it now? Well, I think that I think that one of the uh, messages there is actually what I've been kind of talking about as omni consideration, like that, yes, there is an environmental element to that. There is also an economic implication to that. There is also a health implication to that. There is also a human implication to that. There is also, you know, like if you want to really understand something, I think that the truth, you know, as like Zen philosophy talks, the truth is this unnameable. You can't know it. You can't name it. You can only allude to it. You can say what it is not. You can point at it. And so I think that if you really want to know what the truth is, you got to point at it from as many different angles as you possibly can, right? Uh, so yeah, I think that the human element, you know, and we see that that online right now, there is this duality where people are like either the coronavirus is like going to kill us all or the coronavirus is going to crash our economy and people aren't sure which is worse. Um, hmm. As opposed to... The coronavirus is going to kill a bunch of people, inflict a bunch of human suffering, crash the economy, stir up the financial industry, uh, bankrupt a bunch of businesses, change life as we know it. Um, there's implications for our governments to become authoritarian and rule us in ways that we don't want to be ruled. And like there are spiritual implications and depression and mental health and um, social and just like the implications that we need to be considering are actually much more myriad than the dualities of are we all going to die or is it going to crash our economy and which is worse you know as as i tell 
people around me all the time it's complicated it's 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 every issue every problem every thing like you said there's almost infinite angles to look at it and you know in, in in all of it's true all of it is a way to look at it but when you try to for one mind to piece it all together it does make a an answer towards how you feel about something complex you know <laughs> Yeah, for sure. And one of the things that I've been ruminating on lately, and there's this guy, Jordan Greenhall, or Jordan Hall, you can look him up under either name. I'm not sure why he's changing his name back and forth on us, but he is a futurist and a philosopher, and he is, they are talking about this idea of complicated versus complex, um, basically systems theory being simple complicated or complex system simple being like tic-tac-toe that you could write all of the possible iterations of tic-tac-toe on a single piece of paper and even a five-year-old could study that and learn the rules and play within the bounds of that system a complicated system could be something like a boeing 747 where it has a bunch of different systems that go into it all of which are complicated on their own one person is very unlikely to be able to fully understand each of those systems but it is externally designed and it doesn't change over time meaning that you could write a manual on the 747 and give it to a team of people who could then reconstruct or deconstruct or understand repair you know where a complex system is self-organizing it is emergent. It is evolving. And these are things like our bodies, our minds, ecology, nature, the weather, even just the way that ec- economics works at its base is a self-emergent and effervescent properties. And humans have been for as long, long as we've been doing agriculture taking these complex systems and trying to manage them with complicated systems, right? Complicated systems in this instance would be like, like literally agriculture trying to take ecology and shape it into something that we can eat and government and uh, finance and all these things. And we are at a point, it seems that if you open your eyes to it, that, the way that we have been managing our complexities, even our health, right? Even our mental health, our health, our purpose, our dharma, the way we've been managing them for so long is it's becoming more and more clear that they are not enough, that they are not solving the problems and meeting the needs that we actually have. And so I think, yeah, that is the, you know, the analogy of the, caterpillar that eats 300 times its weight in food every day and then goes into a cocoon only to dissolve into absolute glue into absolute goo before re-emerging as a butterfly i think that now is a chance for us to get a kind of a clearer look at the process of metamorphosis for humanity and what our butterfly might look like it might be the collapse of a mine and economy in a small town. And then some dudes come along and tie a rope across it and, and, and walk <laughs> years later. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> I love that, that idea. I love the idea that we would, that we'd be able to use our 
wealth and our resources and our, you know, the, you know, we don't all have to work in fields to feed ourselves anymore. And we can use our wealth to turn the old minds into recreation and we can be more connected and more aware and more conscious and more considerate. And that is a great goal. I love that as a butterfly. That's a great example of the butterfly of possible human potential aiming higher. I think we just need to aim higher in general. I think we've been conditioned into thinking that we need to be ruled and, and, um, yeah, I don't, I think that people are much more cooperative, much more innovative, uh, than we give them credit for. We tend to be afraid of the outliers in that instead of really having faith in the 96% of humanity that really is cooperative and collaborative. I agree. And now speaking of that, when you guys, you know, wanted to do this project, I hate to bring it all the way back, but did you get any sort of, you know, was there controversy around this? Was there any sort of, um, I don't know, friction that you caused with the town or with other slacklining communities or just adventures in general? Was there anything like that, that, that got in the way or became an obstacle? You know, Danny did a really good job. He is so incredibly polite and well-spoken and really nice. Um, he's a organic farmer and permaculturalist and so uh, comes from a really humble and sweet place when he talks to people. So, And, you know, I can't really remember. I think there was some friction with some people, but, you know, the biggest sponsor for the event was the town itself. And they created a park and they spent a bunch of money and they like put up a new power pole so that we could have power for the whole thing. And so I think in general, the idea of bringing new life to the old wounds of the earth was something that was received really, really well. And Asbestos was the was the biggest sponsor of the whole thing. So I think in general, I think people were really receptive to that kind of messaging. That's that's incredible. And now you know, I'm scrolling I've scrolled through your Instagram looking at some of these lines that are just inconceivable where they are and how gorgeous the pictures come out and how amazing it must feel to be up there. But I'm sure there's folks sitting there saying you know, how in the world do you get a mile long line across two walls of a canyon? And, and can you take us through some of the practicalities of, of getting the structure itself up there? Because, you know, it looks awesome, but there's so much work that goes into something like this. Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, from afar, people see the sport and they think it's about walking across the thing, but two thirds or more is rigging, planning, cooperation, coordination, problem solving, that kind of thing. And which is, you know, it really, that's a part that sets my mind on fire. I love that. I love the rigging. I love the visioning, the dreaming, the problem solving. That's all super fun for me. Um, and typically when people come up and see a high line, we have this like running joke in the entire community that is the most common questions that we get are, how do you get the line across? Have you seen man on wire? And are you tied in? Those are our three most common questions. <laughs> yeah, man. We, 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 all adventurers have those top three questions. I promise you. That's hilarious. <laughs> of course. And so, um, the other thing that, you know, the thing about 
when people ask me that, I tend to, my friend Spencer, um, he has a great way of, of turning that back on people. He says, well, I wouldn't ruin the fun for you. How would you get the line across? Because that really is the essence. That really is at the essence of highlining. It's like, okay, wouldn't it be great to walk across that? Yeah. Next question. How do we do it? And so it's even, even in projects that we've never done, we've gone through this mental process of imagining how we would do it, how much line we would need, how we would get the line across. And every single line is different. You know, there's some lines that are like in a cove and you can just walk the line around other lines. You know, you have to throw something across or, or, you know, like throw the rope down into the can. Canyon, rappel down there, throw the rope in from the other side, rappel down, tie it together, pull it up, you know, all the way to flying drones um, with fishing line. And like, you know, if there's too many trees, you got to fly a drone with fishing line, then pull the fishing line across with contractor cord and turn the contractor cord into paracord, paracord into rope. And then finally you can pull the webbing across because the webbing is delicate. And obviously we put our lives on it. So we, we don't use it for the the harsher part of the rigging we use ropes and stuff for that but yeah getting line across is you know establishing that connection from anchor to anchor is um a huge part of the rigging it is a huge part of the rigging for the world record line um the film that i made and if you just google keen airy in the air you'll see you know a number of you know the three films that i made for keen and the world record highline in canada is one of them and in that video, I kind of explained to the viewer how we actually do it. We kind of lay the wound on the ground very carefully. And then we use a little Zodiac to pull the webbing across the lake. And then we kind of pull the whole thing tight with this one-off crazy machine that these guys designed, engineered, and built. Um, it's like, <laughs> it's a super involved process. I mean, that line took... 30 people the better part of three days to rig um but yeah every line is different and the rigging is different on each one of them which is one of the things that makes the sport so entertaining and so rewarding it really is like once the once we get the line across and rigged just like looking at what we've created is a really really super special part you know when the the nylon bridge is built it's like sort of and construction team has like completed the project you know and then the walking across it is like the cherry it's the reward it's the it's the thing that that we look forward to if we can get through the what is almost the hard part you know putting it up there so yeah the rigging is really super fun and yeah it's something that we learn over time takes a lot of experience to kind of you know uh, the rigging has changed a lot since I've been in the sport, you know, it started with all bolts, like rock climbing bolts that we would drill into the rock. And now there's a huge, huge importance put on natural rigging, how we can use even trad climbing equipment, cams and nuts and um, things to wedge into the rock. And how can we sling the rocks and how can we hook to trees and redirect and do all these different things so that we actually don't have to put the bolts so that when we leave the place, it's just as we found it. So, um, yeah, it's really super interesting. The rigging is so fun. 
I, I mean, it, that is has to be just a, the the biggest part of the effort itself. Like you said, the the actual walking across is the is the cherry on top, and that's obviously what you know people see the the, the pictures that you see. You don't they don't see the ninety percent of the work that went into it. And you know, I want to say I'm looking at pictures you're, uh, of you balancing on the line. You're tied in, and uh, you know, you, it, it, there is this because I've talked to enough adventures and done enough things myself, I know that there is safety in this and that there's a lot of, you know what I mean? Like there's, you know, it looks like it may be dangerous, but there is safety. But you mentioned something earlier. You really are out there alone because if you fall, you're not going to fall to your death. You're going to catch yourself, but you still, if you gave up there, you're, you're just going to hang there. No, no, No one can come get you. And so at some point you do have to, come to your senses and eventually get back on the line and continue to the destination. Correct. I mean, that's, that's the only option. Am am, am I wrong about that? For the most part, for the most part, you're right. Um, rescues off of high lines are not great. It's not a great option on a shorter high line, like up to say a hundred meters or so you can have another person slide out and you can get a hold of the leash ring and like have people on the edge pull them back in and but it's just not a great solution it's really difficult there's a lot of friction involved you have to have a bunch of hands um and when the line gets longer and longer that just that opportunity that reality of getting rescued gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller obviously for the world record line we had a pretty well thought out rescue plan and specialty equipment and a lot of rope laying around. So we could have made a number of different things happen. There was actually one rescue off of the world record line, but luckily she was only like 200 meters out. She had spent four and a half hours just battling her way across this thing. Um, even though we kind of told her that she shouldn't do that, you know, if you can't comfortably walk across it or not comfortably, it's a big effort for anyone, but like if you're not totally certain that you can walk across it, you probably shouldn't go out there. And she totally expended all of her gas, and we had to send the rescuer out on the line to pull her back in, and it took quite a while. But in reality, you know that is a special occasion where we have such a big event and so much coordination that we actually make specific rescue equipment and a rescue team and have thousands and thousands of dollars of extra equipment laying around on hand just so if that happens we're totally equipped we're also like 30 of the world's best highliners and have been around that a lot so you're pretty much in good hands something will will uh you know we're gonna come get you one way or the other but it's not pretty and it takes a long time and yeah for sure like when we're on these you know our typical highline mission you know we go up to the tops of of mountains and we don't take a bunch of extra gear and we don't have huge numbers of people it's like a very much more backcountry experience and so self-reliance is of the utmost importance yeah don't go out on the line unless you're totally um you know ready to take that commitment being out on a high line is a commitment of self-reliance that's one of the best parts of the whole sport so what about it from someone who is you know really you know really well known for this and really good at this what about it from your perspective is dangerous which parts of it i mean i think 
the most dangerous part of it is rigging. The rigging is the most dangerous part. Standing on the edge of a cliff, holding a rope that is trying to pull you off of a cliff is dangerous inherently. Um, so the rigging is the most dangerous part. Once the line is secure and protected and redundant and your leash is tied and your harness is on properly, it's kind of like it's at that point the safest sport that I do. Like it's safer than mountain biking. It's safer than skiing. It's way safer than paragliding. And so that's the – that's the safe part. It's the rigging that's dangerous. So like minding your personal anchors, making sure that the line that you're pulling is not – that you're not standing on top of it, that it could get looped around your leg. Uh, using a personal anchor as much as humanly possible, although sometimes that's impossible because you need to move around on the cliff so much that you can't actually anchor yourself to anything. Um, but yeah, that's the most dangerous part for sure. You know, I want to ask him just out of personal curiosity, what is that second webbing that's that rope that's that line that's kind of draped across the main one? What What is that for? So, so that's actually the backup line. So we use a main and a backup, which prevents you from dying if your webbing breaks, which webbing doesn't mm. break in general. Like for the uses that we use it, it's way, way stronger than we need. Um, but since we are rigging around sharp rocks and stuff, and if you rig it improperly and the webbing, you know, if you are close to the anchor and you fall off of the thing and you put this huge amount of energy into the line and, and it goes down and scrapes itself on a rock and breaks, then that's obviously a problem. So we use a redundant system. And the second webbing has loops in it because you have to make that one a bit longer. Otherwise, you end up standing with two pieces of tensioned webbing and they kind of interact in really weird ways and it wobbles more than it should and it becomes very difficult where with the loops hanging down it actually acts as a dampening system so the second line drapes down under the main line like in bows and it's taped on there um, about every you know, on short lines, it's like every 20 feet, where on the really big lines, it's taped on there like every 20 meters. And this acts as a little suspension system, really. And like as you put a horizontal force into the line, like you wobble as the energy moves through the line, it is absorbed by these hanging pieces of webbing. And so it actually makes the line easier to walk, it makes it safer. Um, and at Highliners, we just typically like how it looks too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it looks, it, it honestly helps me see the line in some of these pictures. Um, yeah. And it just, yeah, it looks really cool. <laughs> um, uh, it was so, so, you know, this is obviously for someone who's never even heard of this concept or seen it. They're going to look at this picture and think, oh my God, I could never do that. I imagine that you have a different perspective about that, thinking like, oh no, it's not as, you know, it's more approachable than it seems. Is is that true? And if so, who can do this stuff? Who can, who can, what kind of, does it take a super athlete or does it take just someone who's willing to learn some skills and practice? I love that question and i think that's exactly the important part of 
highlining actually you know slacklining in general even if you put the thing a foot off the ground between two trees in the park over grass you have people come up and they say yeah. oh never do that i don't have good balance and with an attitude like that you're right right <laughs> like if you think you can't you definitely can't um because you're going to get on right. it and you're going to fall off and that will confirm your suspicion that you're unworthy and incapable but if you treat it as a I, I tell everyone that slacklining is actually not a balance sport. It's actually just a persistence sport. It's just something that you exercise this thing of falling off and getting back up and falling off and getting back up and falling off and getting back up, which we know is the essence of like life from so many philosophers and writers and artists who just have pounded that message into us through all of humanity how many times you dust yourself off and get back up is the grit of life. And that is all that slacklining is. And if you are willing to just try over and over and over and divorce yourself from the idea that falling off makes you a failure or says something about you, um, then you'll find it as a beautiful exercise. And there's so many, so many, so many lessons that I've gotten from slacklining that, you know, like this, that, you know, falling off, is just a chance to get back up and you know falling off of the world record line was a real exercise in managing my own expectations and making my own meaning out of these kinds of things that you know seem so painful and disappointing and frustrating and you know slacklining is exactly that and i think that the difference between slacklining and highlining basically let's say let's say a really good slackliner who can walk across them all day long in the park, even long ones, can get on a high line and not be able to breathe, not be able to even try to stand up because they're so afraid. So slacklining is the art of getting back up and trying again. And highlining is adding a fear element, like the most visceral fear that you've ever felt like honestly of all the sports that I do like when I was learning to highlining I had never been so captured by my inner experience my own fear um and highlining has just such a powerful ability to do that to take the most hardened people and just to absolutely scare them so far out of their pants that they can't even try to do something that on any other day they can absolutely do you know because a high line is actually easier to walk than a slack line because of that dampening effect that we talked about and it's even safer than slacklining because in the middle of it there's nothing to hit you know even in the park you fall off the thing you can twist your ankle but on a high line you fall off the thing you just catch into your leash and it's a soft fall and it's like, you know, the, the fear is illusory. And so facing illusory fears is then an incredibly powerful spiritual, personal developing exercise that we do through sport. And, you know, the that idea that slacklining is just an opportunity to get back up and highlining is a chance to face your fears and get back up is just that never stops being the case. So I think anyone can really realistically learn to highline and it's, it is such an incredible sport for 
personal development and seeing your own fear and like not just seeing it from some abstract standpoint, but really facing it and having to try to stand up and how many times can you fall down until that fear goes away? And yeah, it's just, I highly recommend it for humanity in general. (laughs) (laughs) Man, I'm not going to lie. That just really got me excited to, to try doing this because, uh, it, it seems like something you can do for years. You know, it's not like some of the other sports where, you know, your body it just takes a pounding. This seems so much more like a concentration of and a challenge of will. It's obviously physical. Don't get me wrong, but it's not so jarring as maybe whitewater kayaking or um, running can even be on your joints. And so it's something similar to cycling that you can do for years and years to come. I don't know if I don't know if that's the case, but that's what it seems like. Oh, it's totally the case. And we actually have had this guy um, in our community the last couple of years. He's like 64 years old, has white hair, big, long white beard, and is just so, so, so centered that he is understanding what the challenge of highlining really is from the get go. So he has really uh, accepted, you know, this like, this this trying this getting back up this and this acceptance and he's been, he's been progressing and we love having him out there and so yeah i think the highlighting is something that you get old as as old as you can dink around on cliffs and rocks you can highline it's not gonna it's not gonna hurt you oh man that's that's just fantastic um i know that was a big project going over the asbestos mine is there anything else on your horizon, big project-wise, or films that are coming out? And and also, where can people follow your journey and find out more about you? Yeah, great. Well, you know, this whole thing is kind of, I have two big projects that were in the works. I had kind of a Yosemite project that was going to happen this month. And then next month, I had this big Highline project here in Oregon. We we're going to do America's longest Highline. We were going to do a 1.1 kilometer line here just less than an hour from my house. So, um, and then we were going to do a South Southern California road trip to do a bunch of paragliding. And so those are kind of just in London definitely right now until we get a better idea of what's exactly going on. But I think that those things are still on my horizon. Those are projects that I'm still trying to do when the time is right. And as far as following me, yeah, I have a podcast that's called Airy in the Air. You can follow me on Instagram. That's Airy in the Air, A-R-I in the Air. Um, yeah, that's pretty much my handle everywhere, Airy in the Air. <laughs> and uh, Airy in the Air at gmail.com is my email. And then 1-800-Airy in the Air is my cell phone number. Oh, sweet. That's awesome. 1-800-Airy in the Air. <laughs> well, shoot. Well, Airy, man, I, I, I feel like we didn't do this justice honestly i mean i feel like there's so much more to talk about and think about and uh this I'd was the slack line episode again. yeah okay this was this... the slack line episode got at least we three should do the ski episode yeah we got to do the ski episode because skiing has taught me so much about my life and has given me such great lessons i feel like i could share those and then paragliding is just a totally what a rabbit hole of perspective and challenge and uh growth that has been so yeah let's do an episode for each sport here totally fine by me i really enjoy your perspective your your 
ability to think deeply about the why and what it means. And so, so that, that's kind of what we talk about on the show. It's, it's not a ton on equipment, not a ton on, you know, the stuff of it, or it, it really is. Why do we do this as humans? And, and why do we find this so enjoyable, so fulfilling, so life-changing? So I, I do appreciate you talking about that stuff and, and going in depth. It's you're a great communicator. Really enjoyed this. Yeah. Thanks, man. I really appreciate you having me on. Cool. All right, man. Well, we'll talk soon. And uh, yeah, stay safe out there. And You too, Mason. Thanks, buddy. See you later. All right. Bye. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventure sports podcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.